Welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And in today's episode, I chat with Dr. Tommy Wood. And Dr. Wood's understanding of human health, performance, and longevity is just absolutely remarkable. His ability to take you know, complex scientific research and simplify it is just so incredible. So many great takeaways in this episode. We discuss his recent paper on metabolic health and, and lifestyle medicine and how it should be the cornerstone of future pandemic preparedness. And we discuss optimizing human performance. We look at hot and cold therapies. And when we discuss nutrition, we look at real food diets and fasting and, and monitoring your blood sugar. We discuss supplementing with creatine and vitamin D and zinc and copper. And we discuss the effects of caffeine and how we can best use caffeine for performance and just every day. And, and then his tips for sleeping better were, were just incredible insights for me and, and I'm going to use myself for sure. And we finished with discussing how visualizing and the importance of visualizing and how it can affect us hormonally. And I just absolutely loved that. Um, a few things before we get going. Um, if you want to go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media, you can get the show notes there, timestamps, links, and the sponsorship uh, coupon codes are there. I think the timestamps would be really great for this episode so you can really get go back to uh, areas that you want to re-listen to. Um, please subscribe and share. You'll be doing me a huge favor if you do that. And I'm also loving the feedback, so please keep it coming, whether that's on iTunes. Um, I can't get back to you on iTunes, but I do uh, I do read it and I do uh, listen to what you're saying, so I appreciate that. And otherwise, you can get in touch with me on uh, the social media I, Instagram, Greg Bennett World, or on Twitter, Greg Bennett One, or on Facebook or LinkedIn, I'm just Greg Bennett. So um, look, I'm probably going to go re-listen to this episode several times over the coming months. Just absolutely so much information in this one. And Dr. Tommy Wood was just absolutely fantastic. So enjoy this one. I really did. Before we start, I've got to give a quick shout out to the brands that make this show possible. The only brands I'm working with are brands that provide products that I use daily and truly believe in. These products support my immunity, they help improve my recovery and my focus. First up, my friends at Athletic Greens. I love this company and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. I'm heavily focused on supporting my immunity and boosting my energy and, and helping my gut health, but I want to do it naturally. And I found that support with Athletic Greens, a whole food sourced green drink that tastes great and there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water so there's no clumpiness to deal with. I can't believe a green drink sourced from whole foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I truly love it. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. And there's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free tra daily travel packets with your first order. $79 added value. And get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. This show is also brought to you by my friends at Hyperice. Some of these products I've been using for almost a decade. Makers of the award-winning Hypervolt, the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring quiet glide technology. Hyperice is a wellness tech company that makes devices designed to help you move better. From handheld massage devices to vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and the Normatec compression systems, Hyperice helps you warm up faster, recover quicker, 
and simply move better. Used in professional training rooms throughout the NBA, the NFL, MLB, the MLS, Ironman, and other professional organizations for well over a decade. Designed to help improve circulation, flexibility, and relieve tension. Get $50 off all percussion devices now. No code needed. And get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com. H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E. Com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. All right, my guest today simply blows my mind with his academic prowess. He received his bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. His passion for human health and performance and longevity is just absolutely contagious. And he's currently a research faculty at the University of Washington in the Department of Pediatrics. His research focuses on ways to increase resilience and treat the injury of the developing brain. He has enormous experience in coaching and being a competitor in rowing and CrossFit, powerlifting and ultra-endurance racing. But he just has a a down-to-earth approach to optimizing human performance. And he's been just a great sounding board for me over the last few years. And I'm excited and just a little bit in awe of just having such a brilliant mind on the show. So welcome and thank you for joining me on Be With Champions. Dr. Wow. What, Wood. How, what, how are you, mate? <laughs> what an intro. Um, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to, uh, to get a chance to, to talk with you. No, mate, I'm, I'm always, I, I'm a little intimidated. I can have athletes on this show and chat on podcasts and and I feel quite comfortable, um, but you know, when, when you when you look at what you've studied and your, like I said, your academic prowess, I just it's really quite phenomenal. I mean, I don't, I'm not in that academic world, so I, I look at the, you know, I grew up watching Chariots of Fire and things like that. So when I see, you know, Cambridge University and yeah. that kind of thing, I'm like, oh wow. So um, look, today I want to sort of discuss. I want to discuss so many things. You, you, your paper that you did on, you know, how lifestyle medicine can prepare for the next pan- pandemic. I want to discuss on techniques for optimizing human performance and longevity and all of that. But before we do, I'd like to start by kind of getting to know you a little better and, and maybe wind the clock back a bit and have an understanding of how you, your background in sport, but then how that also, you know, moved into academics and, you know, the science and, and medical and all of that. So can we wind that clock right back? And how did it all begin, mate? Yeah, that's that's an interesting and, and great question. I as a, If anybody knew me as a kid or a teenager, they know that I had very little interest in health in general. Um, and uh, you know, most of my afternoons were spent seeing how many chocolate biscuits I could eat in front of the TV after school. Um, and... <laughs> And it and that the answer to that is a lot, um, and it wasn't really until, I guess, sort of just right at the end of of um, secondary school, and then into my gap year, where I started to get interested in, um, I guess, you know, looking good naked. I mean, that's the only way to to describe it. Really. Um, <laughs> You know, as 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 a as a a teenager, that's sort of what you're focused on, and and mainly because my girlfriend dumped me, and I thought if I got a six pack, she might love me again. Um, which, <laughs> which, as I'm sure everybody listening to this knows, is just not true. Um, but you know, it was worth a shot, and and so that's that's where I started on this, and and certainly for the first year, then in, you know, into my um, undergraduate. Um, time at Cambridge I spent a lot of time rowing 
um, more time rowing than studying, really. Um, but it, it sort of became, again, what maybe many people might identify with, a real obsession. And I mean, I took it more like further than it was good for my health in terms of um, uh, the amount of control I put into what I ate, how much I worried about um, sort of how much volume I was doing, you know, always wanted to work harder, train more, um, always worried about the quality of my of the food that I was eating. Uh, you know, I've, I've joked before that I had orthorexia before it was, you know, sexy. Um, and there's actually quite, you know, there's sort of a, a lot of problems that came with that um, in terms of both my, you know, personal health and how I felt about my myself, um, which took a long time to kind of fix. And it's something that I see um, in a lot of the athletes that I've worked with in terms of, um, you know, the the amount of training they want to do, the f- their fixation with the, the food that they eat, how they look. Um, and, you know, there's multiple reasons for that. But but there's also a lot of benefit you can get from from having seen that side of things, I think. Uh, so, so that was kind of like the start of my journey. Um, as I sort of learned more and looked after myself a bit better into medical school, um, I spent... Uh, quite a bit of time researching or starting to research just on the sides, like all the different things, all the factors that can go into chronic health conditions, particularly multiple sclerosis. So that was my interest at the time. I worked with um, various family members because my brother-in-law had multiple sclerosis and he's essentially my age. Um, And we uh, treated it as an engineering problem. Um, you know, if, if we understand all the outputs, all the inputs, and have some idea of the system in between, can we start to figure out all the things that might sort of increase the, the your likelihood in, of getting and then pro- having progression of multiple sclerosis? So that's when I started to think about um, weird things that infections can do and heavy metals can do and um, nutrient deficiencies can do um, and how those might affect your health. Um, and then later on when i started my phd so so i went to medical school i worked as a as a junior doctor in london for a couple of years um and i mean there's basically no time to think about anything else other than the patients in front of you when, when you're doing that but later on I, I started my phd and i got a chance to to you know sit down and and think about all these things again um and so i was looking at particularly neonatal brain injury uh but also had a, a big personal interest in um health and performance so i started uh, a blog started doing some podcasts um eventually um sort of hooked up online with a guy called chris kelly who worked uh, who started a company called nourish balance thrive working with um uh, mainly endurance athletes who had sort of messed up their health doing all the things that they were told that they should do to improve their performance um like crush themselves um in workouts several hours a day and then eat nothing but refined carbohydrates um that's that was supposedly the key to performance um and a lot of people get spat out of the back of that with you know really bad long-term health problems um and so so we worked with a lot of athletes uh, through that company and then uh, eventually also hooked up with luke bennett who you've had on the podcast at hinter um and i now uh, sort of work alongside him with some of their formula one drivers um so 
through this whole period, I've been, you know, had like one career, which is looking at brain injury, particularly in babies, but now increasingly um, in traumatic brain injury concussions and how those things might interact, sort of how, how do you keep your brain healthy across an entire lifespan? That's, that's sort of an area of research that I'm really sort of actively focused in academically. And then on the side, I've worked with various athletic groups um, trying to maximize their health and performance. Um, and particularly with the, the groups that we've worked with and with my own personal view it's it's much less or you know if somebody comes to me as a coach it was much less about how can i you know get this specific performance in this specific race it was more about how can i be healthy and maintain my performance you know for years into the future you know you know how can we create a robust and resilient human being that's going to keep showing up to the start line um, in, in 10 years, 20 years time, uh, because that's not how most people necessarily think about athletic, athletic performance. They might be thinking about this season, doing anything to perform in this season, but then they might be reducing their, their ability to then perform the season after and the season after. So thinking about performance longevity is something that we spent a lot of time doing. Mm. I, uh, touching on that, I had a guest on, on one of the earlier episodes, Dave Scott, I don't know if you know Dave, but he was basically the godfather of the sport of triathlon. That's what I called him anyway. And he he won six of the Kona Ironman World Championships in the 80s. And um, he, he spent a lot of his career sort of studying performance and nutrition and the effects of performance versus longevity, exactly like you said. And and when, what he was discussing was exactly like you were saying, you know, we all had these refined carbohydrates and everything else. That's what we did in the 80s and 90s. It was preached. We had these carbo-loading parties before uh -huh. events and we we would, you know. And anyway, he's, he's since had, um, excuse me if I get it wrong, but basically some heart conditions, you know, he's 63, 64 and, and believes a lot of that to do with the combination of the inflammation of having all the refined carbohydrates in, com in combination with the very intense long workouts. So mm -hmm. it's one thing to be intense, but like going out for an hour or two hours and just doing it as hard as you can and yeah. then adding the inflammation of the refined carbohydrates. And, mm -hmm. and I kind of said to him, do you think you could have been a better athlete had you known, you know, had a more balanced diet back then and he said yes he did and i i kind of was looking at his resume going wow it was already outstanding <laughs> so i was like it's amazing but i think it's like you said we, when we're consumed and when we're in our 20s and 30s we're invincible right and and even our teenage years we're invincible and and so all we want to do and i i i'm definitely one of these people you know i've i've probably turned around to be a little bit more holistic more recently <laughs> but i was definitely an all or nothing run against a brick wall until it breaks type athlete and and definitely overtrained and all sorts of things and and now i'm really worried about going forward so i'm hoping with this conversation with you now i can <laughs> i can i can uh redirect and look at having some form of longevity from the damage that i've probably did in my in my 20s and 30s but I'm fascinated about this and, and what we can do, um, and, and I want to talk to you a lot more about that. Before I move on, though, I, you touched on your, your work with uh, multiple sclerosis mm. with your, did you say your brother-in-law? Yeah, um, or my stepbrother. Stepbrother. How, how, did you, how did you go with that? Were you able to make, um, what were your findings with that, and were you able to sort of make any differences there? Yeah. Um, so, we... Uh, Create or sort of, you know, looking at all these different interacting things, like like I mentioned, uh, infections, uh, toxins, dietary components, uh, multiple other things. Um, we we created um, an approach that was basically, you know, 
identifying and eliminating um, any factors that that might be potentially damaging. So that could be heavy metal exposures or something like that, um, or you know treating chronic infections, which certainly turns up. And and people with multiple sclerosis have they have some kind of underlying susceptibility to begin with, and then these other factors just sort of add up. Um, and then alongside that, lots on um, you know stress reduction, stress mitiga- mitigation, and then improving the diet with what essentially turns out to be something close to an autoimmune type paleo mm-hmm. protocol that, that people may have heard of. Um, and pretty much at the same time, uh, Dr. Terry Walls, who again, people may have heard of, she's a, a physician in Iowa who essentially reversed her own uh uh, multiple sclerosis in terms of symptomatology you know she was in a wheelchair had to quit work and now cycles to work every day to work as as a physician at the BA um, she she came up with a similar dietary protocol um, on on her own sort of tinkering it with 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 it sort of on herself um, and so I think it's quite nice to to think that um, you know two sets of people with completely different approaches kind of um, arrive at similar conclusions um, and see benefits. So we worked with some sort of informally, I'm not a neurologist, right? So I can't, nobody can be my multiple sclerosis patient, but we sort of, you know, uh, put some of the information out there, uh, consulted with a few, pe- a few people through through or alongside their doctors. Uh, my my stepbrother him, himself has, has basically been symptom-free um, largely uh, without any significant remissions for, I mean, it's almost a decade now, uh, particularly when he's, you know, um, very uh controlled in terms of you know his diet and then also some of the you know other factors around stress mm-hmm. and sleep and other other things and when he's um you know do, does well from from all those standpoints you know essentially you, you wouldn't you wouldn't know that he had any kind of neurological illness that is absolutely fascinating and congrats to you for i love stories like that so i i know this is this show is predominantly on i guess high performance and everything else but i i see that as like uh just a miracle working. So I just love it. And I love that you said you you came from it uh, with an engineering kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. Like it was a really break down the process, you know, systematically. And I, I think that's just fascinating. And and you've been able to take that going forward now into high performance sport um, and, and and focusing on the brain in, in infants and, and all I, I just think this is this is absolutely outstanding. And and just for people that don't know um, our background and how we know each other is through um, you know, I did some consulting work with Hints uh, of Performance as well with Dr. Luke Bennett as well. And and that's how we started working together with a couple of the athletes that you know, we were working with there. And um, so anyway, I want to move on a little bit and I want to start with, you just recently put out a paper, um, metabolic health and lifestyle medicine should be a cornerstone of future pandemic preparedness. Um, being that this is what we're all going through right now with, with COVID-19 is is obviously front and center for, for all of us around the world. Um, and you're sort of talking about how do we do a better job in the future. And I, I read the paper and it was just, it was fascinating. I mean, it spelled out a lot of, for me, kind of obvious things, but I mm. kind of feel like I'm in this life, medical <laughs> lifestyle yeah. kind of world. Um, but just take me through that a little bit um, and what you guys found and, and what you think we can do in the future. Um, and maybe even just touch on what how you think it was handled, your thoughts this time on mm. this pandemic that we're dealing with now. Yeah, the, the the my thoughts on how things are, are being handled currently is well, let's say it's very country dependent, um, and maybe regionally dependent within 
certain countries? Um, I think it's 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 a difficult question to answer because you know right at the beginning, um, nobody really knew what was going on um, or what it was going to end up looking like. So a lot of people were uh, you know quite con- quite conservative in terms of you know trying to make sure you know lock everything down, um, you know really protect people as much as possible because you know the possibility that there was going to be you know, very high case fatality rates so there was going to be a really serious um uh you know pan- pandemic in terms of the number of deaths or serious illnesses that it would cause um you know that then obviously you know a lot of people were just trying to act in 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 best interest and i think that, that was absolutely the right thing to do um and i there has been some problems with mixed messaging about say first people shouldn't wear masks and then they should wear masks mm-hmm. and this is just what what was interesting uh, to me, and yes, I think you should wear masks in public for, for for multiple reasons, if not just to make your other human beings feel more comfortable being outside and interacting with you. Um, and uh, what was interesting to me was that f- for maybe the first time, you were seeing science, the public was seeing science happen in real time. Um, and what people maybe don't realize is that the process of scientific inquiry requires you to be wrong multiple times again and again and again until you figure out what's actually going on. Um, so arguments such as, well, these guys were wrong before, so how can we trust them now? That doesn't, to me, that doesn't make any sense because I have seen, you know, most, if not all, well respected and good scientists be wrong multiple times in their career as we try and try and triangulate what is closest to the correct or best answer um but you don't normally see that um as as somebody who isn't in science what you see is the the media report when the when the paper is finally published but you don't see the the years or decades of toil and mistakes that that, that get you there so so th- that was interesting to me and I, I think that that's that disconnect is part of why um, there's still so much disagreement between the different approaches. And I, I honestly don't know what the right answer is right now in terms of what we should be doing at a population level in terms of you know exposures and shielding people and social isolation, all that, all that stuff. It's certainly not my area of expertise. Um, however, what we have seen in pretty much every country that's looked at it is that those with chronic health conditions, particularly those associated with metabolic disease, so type 2 diabetes, heart disease, obesity, they are at an increased risk, not necessarily of contracting the virus, but but of a severe course of illness and and risk of death. Um, and there's there's so many things that that play into this. You know, it, it's also more prevalent in less privileged populations, uh, which is usually of of uh, you know non-white. Uh, people in in the US and UK um, for various reasons that that go back decades, um, and so it's not just a biological thing. It's not that you know people of different ethnic backgrounds have you know are, are more susceptible just at baseline. You know, there's there's all these other things baked in in terms of the environments that people live in and the stresses they're exposed to and the quality of the food they have access to or can afford. Um, but all of this. Um, creates an increased risk. Um, and so people who have obesity, type 2 diabetes, what you, what you see is a change in the way that the immune system works. Um, and it's the same when you're responding to a flu virus. It's the, it was the same with SARS and MERS, the previous coronaviruses uh, before uh, SARS-CoV-2. So it's not just um, 
it's it's not just specific to COVID nineteen. It's very much um, a change in terms of how the, the body responses uh, re- responds to these viral infections. Um, and so, if we're thinking about um, the future, and I am certain that in my lifetime there will be another pandemic of a similar proportion. Um, how we respond to it may be very different depending on the the process that we have in place. If we're much better at picking up early and you know developing testing and or vac- vaccines earlier, um, you know maybe we don't have to go into lockdowns like we have done now. But I'm sure um, that this will happen again in the future, and it's more likely to be a strain of flu than it is a coronavirus. That sort of people have spent a long long, long time looking at this, um, and so if you want to look after your population. Um, or if you want to look after yourself, then making sure that you're in good metabolic health is one of the you know the best possible things that, that you can do. And so that requires everything from uh, improving the quality of the diet, um, maintaining a good body composition, frequent movement, sleep, uh, stress management, uh, proper social engagement, and you know having people not be soci- socially isolated. Um, that has has a big effect on immune function as well. So all of those things come under the umbrella of lifestyle medicine. Um, and I think that that's something that we can, we can and should be implementing on, a, you know, a whole population level. And it doesn't need to be hard, and it doesn't need to be expensive, and it is very much accessible um, and open to everybody. Um, it's just hard in the current uh, modern environment in terms of the food you have access to, and whether you have the time and ability to implement some of these things. So I think that's why it requires a both a, a top down and a bottom up um, approach um, for listeners. Of this podcast, they may think, well, I don't have a BC, I don't have type 2 diabetes, why on earth is this important to me? Um, and I'd say that's potentially a valid thing to think about. However, it's very interesting to note that some of the um, people who who I know personally who have had COVID-19 and have had very protracted um, disease courses, not that they got very severe disease and had to be hospitalized, but have had ongoing symptoms for long periods afterwards. They have been very fit, active, healthy people, you know, sort of Ironman champion type people. Um, mm. And when you when you look at the literature, what you see is that in people who um, are perhaps overtrained, um, under eating, you see these same increases in it's basically cellular oxidative stress that's driving changes in the immune system. And you see very similar changes in the immune system in people who are overtrained um, or who have, you know, particularly a very high, uh, do a very high volume of endurance exercise. So these same risks potentially apply to those who are very fit at the other end of the spectrum. So you, ha- you basically have a, a U-shaped curve of risk and those who are, who are doing a large amount uh, of volume um, particularly at high intensity, um, that is also a significant oxidative stressor. And you may get some of these similar changes in, in the immune system if you're not then sort of adequately either fueling or, or recovering. Um, mm. so, so that's why I think it's particularly pertinent to the kind of people who might listen to your podcast because they may also be at increased risk because of the way that they, you know, um, because of the way they train um, and mm. the other aspects around recovery. And so, what would you recommend? I mean, it's I've heard this, you know, a, a number of times um, that you know athletes have to be careful to not be overdoing anything. Mm. But you know, I've I've watched uh, you know several guests do incredible things from Ironmans indoors to I've you know seen people trying to break their five k run times and three. They're, they're, athletes are trying to find something to do to keep themselves mm. inspired while there's while there's no events. Um, I mean, it's obviously got to be a patience game. But in terms of 
the kind of volume or the kind of work we're doing, what would you be sort of recommending? Yeah, I mean, obviously, tolerance is is very different from from person to person. But what, mm. um, you know, whenever I'm, I've 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 been speaking to an athlete or their coach about volume and its benefits, um, I know there's multiple schools of thought about where you should be spending most of your time in. Sort of, you know, you know. Are you doing very short, high intensity? Are you doing lot, you know, very long aerobic work? Are you are you working in that sort of in the middle zone around lactate threshold? Um, and I think that last one, spending lots of time there, I think is maximally stressful on the body, um, with potentially in some people less return on investment in terms of uh, performance that comes afterwards. Um, so if you're trying to um, you know moderate volume. Uh, then that's one area that I'd look. Um, however, equally, there's benefit from the lockdown in that you should also have a lot more time to focus on other aspects of recovery, like sleep mm. and nutrition. Um, you know, maybe making sure you're spending time uh, either with loved ones that you live with or around the world. And you're spending time to talk to them because you're not traveling, you're not um, commuted to work every day. Uh, so you potentially have a lot more more time to focus on those other aspects of recovery and it's not that you know training hard or doing large amounts of volume is necessarily bad um it's just making sure you have the time to to recover on the other side um and you know if if people are really digging into it you can potentially do tests for levels of oxidative stress in the body you can take supplements such as n-acetylcysteine a little bit of vitamin c some of those things may help counteract the the negative sort of large volumes of oxidative stress you're, you're producing but but if you can really focus on the other aspects of recovery then then it, it may well be that the the volume itself isn't isn't going to be um isn't going to be detrimental yeah so basically we're looking at look don't run yourself down while this thing is going on yeah it's like to, for i mean like you said if you can focus on the sleep and the nutrition and then obviously i, I like what you said in, in looking after your loved ones and making sure people aren't alone and mm. um the effects of of that are, are, are physically just as important and i think i, I had a, a guest on recently rich roll and we were discussing how we're spending a lot more time you know, FaceTiming and connecting with, you know, our our parents and, and brothers and sisters and, and, you know, and I think checking in on each other a lot more than we ever did before. And I, so yeah, there have great. been some kind of positives to all of this, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I read in the article, and you know, I could be wrong, but did you say that less than 20% of Americans have uh, are me- metabolically healthy? Yes, and it's, it's probably even less than 10%. Um, this is oh, a goodness. recent... Um, it's a recent paper that came out looking at data from NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which is a big um, study they do pretty much yearly in the US where they take several thousand people who are supposed to represent the average American. And then they do lots of different things depending on the year, but they usually do some basic blood tests. And in the more recent um, NHANES groups, uh, they applied um, the criteria for metabolic syndrome or and you know slightly better versions of those to, to look for optimal metabolic health so it's things like um you know having good levels of hdl hdl cholesterol uh, it's waist circumference blood pressure having triglyceride levels below 150 blood glucose levels below 100 this is milligrams per deciliter mm-hmm. and they found that less than 20 percent um 
were you know ticked all the boxes for for optimal in their eyes um what's optimal in their eyes and what's optimal in my eyes is slightly different so if i applied slightly stricter criteria so say you might want your triglycerides to be below 100 or your uh, fasting blood sugar to be below 90 um then you're basically looking at more than 90 percent of adults in the u.s on average having poor metabolic health that's incredible. Is, is that? It's probably much the same with Australia and the UK. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like most of these countries were all westernized countries and, and, and not healthy. I, I think, like you said, I think most of um, people listening to this are, are generally, I more than most, probably in the in that ten percent. But mm. um, it is fascinating to me just to hear how unhealthy metabolically um, we've become, uh, yeah. because I don't think it's always been that way. And I, I wanted discuss with you nutrition and things in a lot more detail a bit further in the show but it's just fascinating to me i also read um where you know there's been a lot said about you know the the older generation of being the ones that have been more likely to to die from from this COVID 19 but you talk about chronological age versus biological and immune age can you yeah. go into a bit about what you mean by that uh, absolutely this, this is um one of the i think fastest developing areas in the aging field is to try and find a better way to quantify age beyond how many years you've been on this planet and there are multiple ways to do it like nobody's really decided which is the best way um you can measure uh, things epigenetically so you look at um methylation on dna and these things shift over time that's probably like the current gold standard but you can also look at more simple blood tests uh you can look at you know, people doing it with like photos of your face and and all these other things, and and the, the idea is basically to see you know how fast is your body aging relative to your chronological age. You know the you know how many years you've been alive, and discrepancies in that are much more predictive of your risk of death and potentially your risk of you know um, changes in the immune system and and you know susceptibility to things like COVID nineteen. Um, that the difference in your biological age you call it compared to your chronological age is, is probably where most of your risk lies so obviously as you get older you will age but the rate of that aging uh is di very different from person to person and is dramatically affected by things like the quality of your diet and how much exercise you do um so there are some very simple things that you can put into place that are gonna you know basically keep you much more resilient and less and slow and and slow the aging process which is then it's going to you know decrease your susceptibility to, to various diseases and um this is something that still requires a bit of work i'll admit because what what they've done when they've built these models is that they've used uh big population data sets again similar like like and Haynes that we mentioned earlier. There are, there are other ones in, in other countries. Um, but they just use that they take them in one snapshot of time and then they they sort of create this biological age for a given person and then look at how that compares to their chronological age and then how that um, increases or decreases their risk of, say, all-cause mortality, their likelihood to die. What we don't really know that well yet, because we've only been doing this for a short period, or scientists have only been doing this for a short period of time, is are these metrics useful in an individual over time? So if I um, you know, measure my biological age once, um, you know, when do I need to measure it again? How accurate is it to measure it again? Does that really tell me something about sort of my long-term 
health. Uh, so at the moment, it can it sort of works on a population level, uh, but with, there's still some work to do to measure these things in, in an individual to have a test that you can track over time and see whether that's going to result in improved long-term health. So it's, it's really promising. It's really interesting, but everybody has a slightly different approach and we're still sort of figuring that stuff out, which I think is very cool, but it's just, it's not quite ready for, you know, like full public consumption yet. There's a lot of there's a lot that you'd want to sort of be looking at from DNA to your snapshot of blood work at any given time to all the other things. Like there's so many variables that you you're trying to trying to look at, right? I mean, I, I think that'd be the hard thing to try and stay on top of. And, and I've always looked at a lot of the blood work that I've had, and and you've even looked at my blood in the last couple of years. And I kind of feel like, well, hang on, I was really dehydrated and overtrained or whatever at that point of time. So does that map map out for my next ten to fifteen years? Well, Probably I don't know. Not. But, <laughs> but yeah, it would affect your results on that day. And, yeah. Uh, the the machine learning algorithm will assume that that's going to be important for 10, 20 years to 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 come. But you know, it just be you know just because of what was happening on that day, that might not be a picture of your physiology as a whole most of the time. So you're right, mm-hmm. that is a an issue. It's just like um when we when anybody does any study where they ask people how they eat and then they look at their disease risk twenty years later, um. It's basically impossible to infer <laughs> anything from that because you know how what you what you think you remember from how you ate for the previous year. That's what they might ask you. How that then reflects how you ate and everything else in your life for the next twenty years. I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense. But people try and do it, but you realize that in reality, there's so much error there that is is probably not worth doing. I know these little snapshots that make us feel good or bad about ourselves for a given moment. And then it's like we're a different person a week later, a month later or whatever. I know. You also touched on in your paper vitamin D. Now, a lot has been said. Um, I think, uh, I don't know, are you friends with Rhonda Patrick? Um, not, so- not personally, but I obviously not, I know of her work. Very, very yeah well I, I put you and Rhonda in the same kind of category you both are doing incredible work and uh, but I know she was on the Joe Rogan podcast and advocating vitamin D and she'd done a lot of homework on vitamin D when all this uh, COVID-19 came out and, and from what I understand you know vitamin D was off the shelves and out of stock yeah. within you know 24 hours of her being on the Joe Rogan podcast um, yeah. hence the influence you, you mentioned it you, you touch on it in your paper I don't you didn't go into too much detail but the effects of vitamin D in helping us prepare for the next pandemic. Can you just tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So there are an increasing number of studies. And actually, when I first started writing um, the paper, this was now months ago, essentially. Um, And it takes a long time for things to be published in the academic world so <laughs> more evidence had accumulated by the time it came out but you know don't really worry about that these things we always know these things are fast moving and i tried to preempt that in the paper as well uh, we certainly weren't going to have all the answers when we wrote it um mm. and may not have the answers all the answers for several years um as as a community um but there were you know there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that you are at increased risk of poor outcomes uh, it within if you have COVID nineteen, if you are vitamin D deficient, um, and maybe insufficient as well, um, and so that uh, I don't don't know if um, so you mentioned Rhonda Patrick. There was this sort of pseudo spat between Rhonda Patrick and Chris Masterjohn, um, who's another. Um, he's a nutrition uh, nutritional navel gazer um, with good intentions. 
Um, but the, the sort of this back and forth about what level of vitamin D was should be the target. Um, and I think we often overcomplicate these things. Um, but having enough vitamin D is certainly important. Um, so what does that mean? Um, if you measure your vitamin D level um, in the US, have it somewhere between 30 and 40. Um, that's going to be good enough. And ideally, you'd get it from going out in the sunlight if you can. Um, that's always best. That gives, gives num- a number of benefits um, beyond just vitamin D. Um, but you could potentially get it from a supplement as well. Um, mm-hmm. the, the problem with if you supplement with vitamin D is the amount that you need to get to a certain level in your blood is very variable from person to person. So you just need to check it again and make sure you don't have too much. Um, as an athlete trying to perform physically, there is um, some evidence that maybe being a, just above 40 is slightly better. Um, that's one of the arenas where uh, a certain level of vitamin D is associated with with an improvement in, in health or performances in, in certain athletic groups. So, you know, if you're somewhere around 40, you're probably in, in, in good shape. I read somewhere, like you said, it's best to get it outside and being in the sun. And and from what Laura understands and, and some of the feedback she's had on some of the work she's done is that, you know, to get, she's better off sort of getting 20 minute doses, you know, throughout the day um, and rather than sort of get taking a supplement of 5,000 IU in the morning or whatever. She's better off doing little doses throughout the day. I also read or heard somewhere that, you know, you're better off not having sunglasses on. Is that something? Have you? Do you know anything about that? That you? Yeah. So, so possibly. Um, and I no longer wear sunglasses um, for b- because of this, and and I don't know the true strength um, of of the evidence, but there is some data to suggest that the the production of melanin precursors and the signaling from the the hypothalamus um, and or and other structures within the brain. Uh, to to make melanin to tan in response to sunlight requires the sunlight to also hit the eye. Um, so if you're wearing sunglasses, there's a disconnect between the how your body responds to the sunlight um, because it, it, it's not detecting the sunlight in the way that it normally would, which is not just through the skin; it's also through the eye. So if if you're wearing sunglasses, then you you interrupt some of those signaling pathways and you may and as a result you may end up burning more because you're not producing as much melanin as you otherwise would wow what's the magnitude of the effect i don't know but it's interesting enough for me to think well hang on a second <laughs> i know there's, there's multiple good things about the sunlight hitting my body if that also means that some sunlight should go through my eyes i'm i'm willing to to believe that that's 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 a thing because you know i, I come from a you know if if, if ever i can't answer a question or i don't understand a question in biology I, I try and come from an ancestral type of viewpoint right like what environment did we evolve in over millions of years and that one would be this when the sun is up it's going into your eyes so maybe there's some benefit from that so it's you know some people might say it's a little woo woo or wishy-washy but i i, I most of the time uh, try and avoid wearing sunglasses because then I have that, you know, a, a true connection between the amount of light that my brain is seeing and my skin is seeing. So you're telling me they didn't have Oakleys 2,000 years ago? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> no, I, I love, I, I'm a bit like you. I've always loved looking back at the 
the ancestors and, and figuring out, you know, how we've evolved and, and not to say modern medicine and everything doesn't have its place and, and, and what we've learned, but, but I certainly enjoy that kind of looking back and, um, you know, I often say to Laura when we're talking about nutrition, you know, we, let's eat, or, you know, you've probably heard it as well. Let's eat like our grandparents did that kind of thing. But then I'm like, but it's really hard to eat like our grandparents did these days because to find grass fed and finished meats, to find wild fish, to find organic fruit and vegetables, to, you know, non GMO, it's actually become hard work to eat like our grandparents did and, and far more expensive. You know, so you're kind of like, I mean, we can touch on nutrition in a little bit. I just want to finish one more thing um, with your paper because it is fascinating and I hope it gets to the right people, the politicians and things, that, the people that can actually make some of these, implement them into society because I don't think we're, we're focusing enough on society. I think we're reactive. We're mm. far too reactive and we're not focusing on prevention enough and I think your paper and that kind of thing is, is what, is needed to be heard. And the final bit was, you know, you, you discussed movement um, and the importance of movement. Um, and even, you know, six minutes before you, you eat a meal or whatever, just small bits of movement is, is critical for, for the body, you know, to, for that metabolic health. Um, you know, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, this is particularly pertinent um, for blood sugar control. Uh, and again, some of the data from, from COVID-19 patients suggests that if you have worse blood sugar control, which is very common in diabetics, um, but it can also be, uh, you know, large swings in blood pressure are also very common in athletes. Again, particularly those consuming a lot of refined carbohydrates. And there is some nice data looking at continuous blood glucose monitoring in fairly high level athletes. Um, and their blood sugar is all over the place. And it's high a lot of the time because of what they're eating. Um, and so, one of the best ways to improve blood sugar control is very frequent and for listeners of this podcast, quite gentle exercise like a brisk walk. Um, mm. And if you take people with type 2 diabetes, for instance, and you have them do five minutes of brisk walk walking or maybe climb up and down a, a flight or two of stairs every hour, they have better blood sugar control than if you once a day put them in the gym for all that time shoved together. So, if, so instead of doing mm -hmm. 12 little, little bursts of five minutes, you do an hour on the treadmill. They'll have much better blood sugar control from the frequent small doses of, of movement. So this is, this is something to do with how, you know, I think we're, you know, we're basically wired to be frequently moving and that's not something that we're getting a lot of. So uh, of particular importance in, in lockdown or social isolation, if you're working from home, you may think that you know you're getting all the benefits from from exercise, you know, by getting on your turbo for two hours or something. But actually, you may get some additional benefit just by making sure you get up and you know move around, be at the apartment or swing a kettlebell or go outside for a brisk walk um, a few times during the day. That's going to give you much more blood, stable blood sugar throughout the day, which has a whole load of knock-on benefits. Brilliant! I love that. Because you can get your head around that too, can't you? It's like yeah. I think as endurance athletes, we're always like more is better, and what you know, we got to do these huge workouts. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. 
I know since retiring from sport myself, it's and Laura and I, it has become a little bit more of that. And now with kids, it's kind of if we can get a fifteen-minute workout in and then come back and then another one at lunch and another one. That, that's kind of what we're trying to do. But I want to move on now and and, and really talk about optimizing our performance today and how that can combine with longevity. Um, and one area that I've been really experimenting with this last sort of six months um, is kind of hot cold therapy. Um, more so the cold, I've felt that it, it, it has really um, not only physically, you know, that that's kind of one aspect, but I felt like it affected me mentally almost more than anything else has. And, and, and I was just doing... 15-minute ice bath um, at, at around sort of 50 degrees or 12 degrees centigrade. I think that's I think that's about right. Um, and doing that to bring my core body temperature down a little bit and then I just found that it, it affected my mood um, more than anything that I've ever experienced, and, you know, better than any kind of taking caffeines or any kind of any nutritional kind of thing. Do you, can you tell me a bit about why that works and maybe why we should be bringing it in? Uh, yeah into our lives sure so, so certain certainly um a number of potential benefits to both hot and and cold uh exposure um and although their timing around exercise is going to be potentially important um so so, so say you're talking mainly about cold but just sort of briefly touch on hot say like uh, dry saunas in particular mm. they activate a number of uh, similar pathways to um, to exercise and there have been some studies which suggest that if you sauna after you do a certain workout you can amplify some of the effects so you get slightly better improvements in cardiovascular um, performance or cardiovascular health or you might um, potentially improve um, the the muscle protein synthesis response so like you can potentially um, stimulate a bit more muscle growth after say resistance training if you sauna afterwards so you're kind of augmenting the, the exercise that you did Conversely, if you do cold straight after certain types of exercise, you may blunt the responses uh, to, to exercise. So it's it, it's very good acutely if you're trying to recover quickly so that you can perform again, right? So you might see this in um, tennis players who are going to you know play another match the next day or in CrossFit athletes who are going to compete again in a couple of hours. Then an ice bath could be good, but it's actually, it might be, blunting some of your long-term response to to a training session but if you're trying to uh, get that you know decrease inflammation decrease soreness so that you can recover and, and perform again very quickly then ice baths can certainly help so you know the the timing around exercise and what you're trying to achieve at the time is certainly important in terms of exposure and and you know say cognitive performance and and health cold baths are really great hormetic stressor being you know hormesis being the idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger um exercise is another is another hormetic stressor and it upregulates a number of things also associated with with exercise so you so it may be that you're, you're getting uh, you know uh you're altering the autonomic nervous system right so uh vagal tone the vagus nerve uh being the parasympathetic nervous system sort of like the the rest and digest side of of your of your nervous system that can be upregulated or um uh it's uh function improved with cold exposure um you might also be getting you know release of certain um hormones that that are you know sort of make you make you feel good you know endorphins can certainly be released um, <laughs> BD, um bdnf blood derived neurotrophic factor which is also increased after uh, exercise that can be um, increased as well 
long term it may improve uh sort of like your your metabolic function it may increase uh brown fat production which can um as sort of increase the amount of energy you can essentially waste and burn off that's a little bit controversial but it's possible so so many of the things that you might see in terms of benefits from um endurance exercise you can upregulate some of those pathways as well uh with cold exposure um and then also you know effects of the um uh the nerve sort of like the nervous system side of things mm. um in, uh, it's interesting to note because you're, you're in florida right so it's hot mm. so one of the one of the what you you know we know that cognitive both cognitive and um, physical performance decrease or can decrease as core temperature decreases so one of the benefits may simply be that you're decreasing your core temperature uh, which which just you know brings you back to to a, a physiological temperature uh, that that is more conducive to, to whatever it is you're trying to perform at um, in the next hour or two after that. Because we, you know, we do, you do that with with athletes potentially performing in hot environments. You'd stick them in a, in a in a cool bath for a period of time beforehand, and then they'll perform better in you know the hour or two afterwards. It's fascinating all these stresses. You know, I, I look back when we were competing full time, and we we'd had a have our ice baths, and we'd we do them quite often. Um, but we had different protocols, which, like you said, it was almost like the inflammatory response, um, you know, after big runs or whatever. So we could back up and train again the next day mm. kind of thing. And then as I went from sort of the short course racing to the longer, I started going, well, hang on, I want to keep some of that fatigue and stress and make the body have to rebuild itself. Um, and kind of like what you're saying to some degree, the timing of the ice bath, um, and getting the benefits from it and now i'm more of a you know i work out half an hour to an hour a day max um you know like you said maybe a couple of walks with the kids and, and laura on the beach and that kind of thing but i'm really not an athlete anymore i'm just trying to this is about you know health and, and longevity um and so doing these kind of 15 minute ice baths to bring my body temperature down a couple of degrees and then i'm very i'm, I'm curious as to your thought of i, I try not to warm up too quickly mm -hmm. so you know i try and hold the cold for hours if i can yeah. you know uh i don't have a hot shower i don't you know i might dry myself quickly but i what is what am i doing to myself there by sort of trying to keep that body temperature down that couple of degrees for you know several hours in fact even half an hour to an hour later my body temperature is still going down um, mm. when i've taken my temperature is that a good way to be doing things? A lot of this I kind of read on a, I think it might have been Rhonda Patrick or, or, or somebody I was reading a document they put out and I was like, so I've been sort of following that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, so there are, there are there are a number of different things that you're potentially doing. The, this you, You've now added this as, as, as an additional beneficial stressor because you don't have as much, you're not doing as much exercise as you were previously doing. So this now comes as, as something else sort of helping your body become resilient and adapt. Because you know exercise isn't as big a part of your lifestyle as it used to be, which is you know. So then this is an, another nice thing to add in mm. with, um, with the the way you've done it. I, I think it's it, it might simply be a case of um, uh, the the total metabolic demands that you're creating, um, and and we know that when you have increased, um, so say if your if your body temperature increases then you have a you know you'll eventually have a much greater drive to sleep for instance you'll produce a lot more adenosine in the brain that's going to increase sleep pressure so by decreasing your core temperature you're decreasing your overall metabolic rate you're going to decrease the accumulation of some things that may 
um, eventually affect cognitive function as they build up over the day. Um, so you're, you're potentially giving yourself this, this longer period of time um, where you've got a little bit more, uh, um, you know, just a, a bit more capacity because you're, you're not running your, your, your temperature as high. You're keeping your core temperature down by a degree or two. Um, there's, there's, that could, it, you know, it could have those sort of like acute performance benefits, I'm sure. Mm. It's all fascinating to me and I've been loving doing it. And I, I had a couple of weeks off doing it, um, you know, but, but I'm kind of keen to get back into it because I, I really do. And like you said, I think being in Southern Florida, it's incredibly hot anyway. So it's kind of a nice, nice way to just bring the body temperature down. Yeah. I want to move on and, and just talk about nutrition for performance. Um, what kind of advice can you give being that most of my listeners, are, you know, probably endurance athletes, um, is there any kind of simple tips that you can give them i know that we're all individuals but mm. what they should avoid we've obviously we've talked about refined carbohydrates but what other advice can we kind of give going forward yeah so i think refined uh carbohydrates they are they are an important place to start just because they've made you know they've they've sort of been the cornerstone of fueling for endurance sports for for decades now and there is some shift there um, but still, uh, there's, there's, you know, there's often a, you know, Gatorade, Powerade, you know, carbo loading, there's still an element of that, that, that that's around and, and people focus on. And what, you know, if, if somebody's trying to think about how this applies to them as an individual, um, the, this, the simplest thing to do is to just test your blood sugar occasionally uh you can get a 20 dollar blood sugar meter from the pharmacy um test it you know an hour after meals uh test it in the morning see what how you know be, big these swings are um and and the the big spikes after meals those are kind of things you want to minimize um and th those spikes will happen when you have a large amount of, of refined carbohydrate, but the size and the, and the type of spike is very different from person to person. What we've learned, particularly in the last five years or so of nutrition research, is that you can give two people exactly the same meal and their blood sugar response will be completely different. Um, like you give two people a cookie and one will have this big spike in blood sugar and the other one, like nothing happens to their blood sugar, like completely unexpected. Um, so just a little bit of, of looking at what causes large blood sugar spikes. Um, I don't think it's necessarily going to, you know, is it going to like change your performance in the next week or month? Pro probably not as you know, much more important will be your you know, total caloric load. You know, are you fueling uh, enough essentially? And, and a lot of the athletes that I ended up working with over the years just weren't eating enough food, um, particularly because um, of, of all the different things that you see in the popular, the popular press, um, you know, so carbohydrates became, you know, quote unquote, bad for you. And then, you know, there was still this hangover of fat being bad for you. And then at, at, at one point, and still like protein apparently causes cancer. So you can't eat protein, you can't eat carbs, you can't eat fat. And you should, <laughs> and, and you should, and you should intermittent fast, uh, because that's good for you. And then, oh, yeah. And then by the way, please train for 20 hours a week. Um, yeah. And this is, that's just like the perfect storm of uh, like, just everything starts to fall apart from a physiological perspective to, to put it simply so so you know in the short term simply eating enough is by far the most important thing but long term if you're thinking about um you know the the long-term health of your of your heart and your arteries and your muscles and your joints then uh blood sugar 
is is you know it plays a huge role there so so that's where you know just seeing how you respond to to different carbohydrate sources can 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 be really important then um you know i think there's the there used to be you know this uh you know a lot everybody has talked about protein in terms of uh building muscle after um you know particularly in in you know, guys doing resistance training strength training in the gym but there is an increasing amount of evidence again just in the last year or two that um it also improves recovery in endurance athletes uh so making sure you're eating enough protein um is is probably more important for endurance athletes than maybe we appreciated before mm. um and that's something that i that i'd always uh encourage as well um and then another thing that i i think i think personally is really important particularly for long term health is the quality of the fats that you eat so you know really reducing your intake of refined vegetable oils soybean canola fried things um you know these oils tend to crop up in most uh processed foods um and they're it's really easy for them to be damaged within the body cause extra oxidative stress they interfere with the way that our body handles inflammation um so just reducing the intake of those um i think that has a lot of really long-term benefits as well there's so much good advice there and i guess my next kind of question lead on question to that is you know there's so many diets out Mm. there um whether we're talking gluten-free dairy-free paleo keto low carb i know whole food you know plant-based vegan Mm. or whatever it is there's like everybody seems to go on a on a tangent um your thoughts on some of those? I mean, you mentioned intermittent fasting, and I yeah. think I've talked about it on this show. I've experimented with that, and actually, I've found I, I don't sustain any of these things. I like to try them for a while, yeah. and and while I was doing that, um, I actually did find that um, I felt cognitively really clear without consuming any food in the morning. You know, if I, I mean, I'd finish eating at six p.m. at night, and then I'd um, I wouldn't start eating. Kind of, you know, I'd try and do that. Well, it'd be over 12 hours, but basically I get to about 10 a.m., about 16 hours. But in the morning there, while I wasn't eating, I just felt really fantastic. And I got to the point that I wasn't hungry. So I wasn't I wasn't forcing it. You know what I mean? I wasn't mm. – what, what are your thoughts? I mean, you mentioned that. Um, is it something worth trying or do you think some of these diets and things are just, look, just eat – <laughs> like what you just told us focus on your blood sugar and forget all of these things yeah i think to a certain extent things are overcomplicated um and or bolted on to some kind of ideology that's then somehow just like back justified and mm-hmm. as humans we make decisions based on emotion and then we rationalize them afterwards um everybody <laughs> everybody that. does it I do it too. I'm not. I'm not pretending that I'm some perfect scientific. I can just give you the evidence. Everybody does it, but this is what happens: is people make it, you know, make a decision based on emotion, and then they try and find evidence to rationalize it afterwards. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I think all of the diets that you mentioned are great. If you want to eat that way and you feel good, and maybe you do some tests and those look good, I have. Why would I have any argument? with that i've literally none um i have a huge amount of respect uh for for rich roll we we met um actually about a year ago we did we did a podcast together we were sort of on on being interviewed on the same podcast which is which is great and i have a huge amount of respect for him even though a plant-based diet is not my personal preference nor is it my what i would normally recommend to people but 
why would you argue with what's working for him? You, you can't do that. Um, but I think that the most important underlying tenet is eating real food and eliminating highly processed stuff, which messes with appetite regulation. It messes with the hormonal physiology responses to food. It results in all these problems with blood sugar control and other you know, inflammation downstream. Mm. Um, and so whether most of your energy comes from animal foods or plants, I have no real preference. Um, but if it looks like real food, like you bought it from the meat counter or the fish counter, or you got it from the the, the produce aisle in the grocery store, great, perfect. That, that's that's that, that's the main. That's my main personal overarching um, suggestion. When it comes to you know intermittent fasting, or or what what you were talking about was what we might call time restricted eating. So you're eating in a, in a narrow window of about eight hours during the day, and that's similar to what I do. I probably eat between nine a.m. and six p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are multiple reasons why you felt cognitively clear in the mornings. Um, the you may have an increase in ketone production, um, which can which may have some cognitive benefits. It could be that when you eat whatever it is you do eat, you see these large swings in blood sugar, which could af- negatively affect your cognition. Or you know you sort of maybe eat a large meal and that can sort of like mess with your cognition a little bit as well. I'm not sure exactly how you're breaking your fast, um, but equally if you're if you're break if you're finishing your meal three hours before bed, you're going to sleep better. And there's a, there's a good amount of um, data to support that. So by eat finishing by having your last meal at six pm, you'll sleep better. Therefore, you'll be cognitively more clear in the morning. So there's <laughs> multiple reasons why that could be the case. And there's some data to suggest that if you narrow your eating window slightly, say to 10 10 you know less than 12 hours um you know 11 or 10 hours um then you might have some some improvements in terms of metabolic as metabolic health as well in terms of blood sugar control so all of that uh, can potentially be beneficial what i will say is that the only time and i would you know if if it fits into your lifestyle um then i would recommend it pretty much to everybody um you know try and eat within a say a, t- a 10 hour window during the day um but some people it's difficult because they're working they want to you know they their family eats dinner late but then they get a chance to sit down and eat dinner with the whole family they don't want to sacrifice that and i completely understand that i'm not saying that you, you know you should <clears throat> sacrifice family time just because of some rigid way of of eating i would mm. definitely prefer that you spend time with your family um but now i've lost my train of thought um yeah the the one potential downside is that if you are uh, an athlete doing a large volume of training, you require a large number of calories and you're trying to eat whole foods and you're trying to time restricted eat, you won't, it'll be very hard for you to get enough calories on board. So at some point, all these things that we talk about in terms of manipulating uh, diet, uh, like macronutrient composition, uh, diet quality, diet timing, they can backfire if you're somebody who is putting in three hours a day of training and you just need to eat 5,000 calories. And if you're eating that 5,000 calories from sweet potatoes and chicken, that's going to take a long time and a lot of food and a lot of meals to get it done. Um, so you just need to be wary of of, of uh, what, what um, might backfire in terms of just not getting enough calories on board um, if, if you're somebody who's still in the midst of a, you know, a very... Um, large and intensive training program. 
That was all brilliant, Tommy. Even though you lost your train of thought, I didn't think you did. I, I thought that was all fascinating, mate. And I jotting down notes and going, wow, I'm going to re-listen to this and go through it all because it's absolutely fantastic. And I guess on top of that then, supplementation. Um, are there any areas that you specifically think people should be definitely supplementing, even if they're, they've got you know, the kind of food that you the real food kind of diet that you're talking about that is there still areas that you would suggest for most people to still like, would you suggest a multivitamin for most people or, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah. Often with the athletes we worked with, I would suggest a good multivitamin. Um, and, it, it, I, I don't really have any particular brand loyalty, but I like the ones by Thorn, and there are some that are NSF for sport certified. So if you're a tested athlete, it's nice to know that there's no nasties in there. Um, it's been you know third party tested. Um, so I do often recommend something like that. I think if you get uh, a good amount of your calories from um, animal foods, meat, organ meat, particularly eggs. Um, and then you also have, you know, a wide variety of plants in your diet. I think it's unlikely that you're going to be really deficient or insufficient in anything. Um, mm. I think athletes can often do with a little bit more zinc. If they're going to take more zinc, then maybe a little bit of extra copper. Um, vitamin D is something worth checking. Um, then the only thing uh, that I would really recommend is creatine. I think everybody should take creatine. Um, it's uh, super cheap super well researched really safe um it has multiple benefits in terms of the brain um and then also it's going to have some benefits in terms of particularly uh, response to resistance training and strength mm. maybe less so on on endurance um but yeah if, if there's you know vitamin d if you if you're insufficient and creatine those are probably the two that there's very few people that i would recommend not take those that's fascinating. I always thought creatine was for that really explosive, mm. you know, all-out effort of under eight seconds or whatever it is. You know, it's like that kind of a, a thing. But you're suggesting even endur- even the layman and endurance athletes? Yeah. So for a couple of reasons. Uh, one uh, being that it is incredibly neuroprotective um, in pretty much every animal model it's been studied in every type of disease it's been studied if you have creatine on board um you it's, it's probably going to protect you if you get an injury and so that is if you're on your bike and you get hit by a car or um you know if you have a if you're 70 and you have a stroke um i think creatine is going to be beneficial to you so pretty much anywhere across the lifespan having some extra creatine in your brain is probably going to be protective um, and then it also, um, making creatine is one of the most methylation intensive processes in the body. Um, so people who are interested in methylation, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of your methyl groups go into making creatine. Um, so if some people for whatever reason have some problems methylating, they may offload some of that, um, me- uh, sort of metabolic uh, stress or metabolic requirement by 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 taking some creatine um and there's really no downsides other than when when you and so you don't need to load it you know you just take like half um or like 0.05 grams per kilo so i weigh 100 kilos i take five grams a day um something like that and and uh other than when you first taking it you might have a bit of a you know a few fluid shifts it might sort of increase uh, particularly so a bit of water retention in your muscles. So you just need to make sure you drink a little bit more after you start taking it. Um, but 
it's been tested in multiple populations. It's super safe, um, particularly because you know most athletes are at risk of some kind of concussion at some point, and everybody's at risk of some kind of brain injury long term. Um, it also um, in randomized control trials improves symptoms of depression, um, uh, and people who eat and people who eat more foods that create creatine have a have a lower risk of depression supposedly. So, yeah multiple reasons to take it and not many reasons not to take it i'm sold i'm sold buddy i'm I'm hitting the pharmacy on the way home from the the studio here one thing i will one thing i will say is that make sure that you get crea pure which is made in germany and everybody white labels it and sells it it's super cheap if it's not crea pure it's probably made in china and it's probably full of a load of stuff that you don't want to put in your body so make sure that you get creatine monohydrate that's branded as Korea Pure, um, but pretty much every sports supplement company will have Korea Pure that they white label. But that's just the one. It's the one caveat. Brilliant, thanks, buddy. That is absolutely really helpful. Um, I just want to move on a little bit here. Again, you know, one of the big things that we do in endurance sports is and, and just lifestyle things is caffeine. Um, what are your thoughts on the types of caffeine, whether it comes from coffee or nodos or you know, green tea or, or whatever it is. What are your thoughts on on using it both for physical activity or even just on a on a daily dose things and the effects it has physically and obviously on the brain? Um, hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, why why do you just ask about caffeine? There was a really interesting study in rugby players where they looked at uh, they sleep deprived them and then they looked at the effect of caffeine or creatine on skills performance in rugby players <laughs> and both caffeine and creatine both improve performance after sleep deprivation so that's another that's another uh tick for creatine um just because I, I forgot to mention it um so <laughs> caffeine i'm a big fan of caffeine um but if it it kind of depends on why you're taking it and how you're using it so if you are taking, if you want to use caffeine as an ergogenic right, to Im- improve performance, you probably need quite a large dose. And by large dose, I mean six to eight milligrams per kilo, um, which is which is basically like six venti coffees from Starbucks. Yeah, yeah. so it's a lot. What is that it's like? Four Yeah, it's about four hundred milligrams or something. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, so so yeah, so for me, it'd be six hundred to eight hundred milligrams. It's all. I mean, it's a lot of ca- a lot yeah. of caffeine. So that's where most of the evidence base for for caffeine's ergogenic effects comes from. Mm. Um, and also, it's you have a much greater effect if you're caffeine naive. So if you if or or if you haven't had any caffeine for a long period of time. So if you want to use caffeine to boost performance, a you need to take quite a bit. And B, um, you should not use it regularly. Um, it should be what you you should get be used to it, but it should be it should be what you should use when you're trying to have a given performance, like during a race. Um, the rest of the time, you're when you take caffeine and you feel better, it's probably getting you back to baseline because you're in some form of caffeine withdrawal. Um, which is basically how I am every morning. And I have actually, I will say that I've recently in the last year dramatically like probably halved my caffeine intake and also shifted it much earlier in the day and i sleep much better Mm. the um the half-life of caffeine is quite long so on average if you have any caffeine after midday you know at least 25 percent of that is still going to be circulating in your body by the time you go to sleep um so and that's going to have a you know a, a real effect on your sleep so that's worth bearing in mind 
Another thing with caffeine and, and, and some other things that you might take to boost cognitive performance is that depending on the scenario, so particularly if you're sleep deprived and you're you're trying to do cognitive work, you might feel that caffeine is helping your brain. But if you do objective tests, you're not actually performing any better. Um, and we see this with multiple things is that like you think that you're performing better, but you're actually not. It's not really making any difference. Placebo only. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Or, you know, in some scenarios, you might actually be performing worse, even though you think you're performing better. Um, so, so, so it really depends on, you know, it really depends on what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, I drink coffee, like black coffee, because I, I really like it. I'm, I've become a, a, a bigger sort of coffee snob. Mm-hmm. in the last couple of years and sort of like tried lots of different coffees and brewing methods, all that kind of stuff. I just find it super interesting. Um, but I'm not using, I don't use caffeine. I used to, to use caffeine p- for performance, which involved heroic doses and, um, uh, you know, sort of like pre-workout supplements and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And then like, as a result, my sleep was wrecked and, you know, I was overstressed all the time and the, the caffeine definitely contributed to that. So, so it can really be beneficial, but it, you know, if you're using it for performance, either cognitive or physical, it requires <clears throat> quite sort of um, concerted usage. The rest of the time, you're just drinking it because you're within re- withdrawal and it just takes you back to like your normal baseline <laughs> rather than actually improving your performance. It's, it's funny you talk about like, you know, going off caffeine, you reduced yours. Um, since Laura, you know, got pregnant with our first baby, our first child, you know, she went off coffee, sugar, alcohol, everything. So I've lost my, my partner in crime with all the fun <laughs> stuff. And, uh, and so I went off it, you know, I, I basically, I, I went off it substantially anyway. And it's only been sort of more recently that I've started back, you know, just with a little bit of, I have a, an English breakfast black tea, you know, and uh, I'm just sort of enjoying that at the moment with a little bit of manuka honey or whatever. And that, that's mm-hmm. kind of it. And, um, and that's one cup a day and it's hardly anything. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'll take a micro dose. I, I, I'm working with a company for Sigmatic with the mushroom mm. teas and oh, things yeah. like that. And I'm really loving their products. And they have a, a new thing called the, the Focus Shot, Mushroom Focus Shot, which, which is a combination with their lion's mane uh, mushroom. And there's 50 milligrams of caffeine in that. And I, I do feel like, reinvigorated and i feel pretty good on it but maybe i'm now i'm starting to question it you know do i feel like that or is it just because I've, I've got a great guest that i'm talking to on the podcast and i'm totally amped um yeah, but, yeah. but it is that kind of combination but i have a, a funny story when you talk about that kind of macro dosing on and and and, and really seeing how you feel so i did a 70.3 iron man probably back in it was right when towards the end of my career, so 2015, 2014, and I was like, I've got to experiment on this caffeine. And so I went off it for a month or so, you know, and was getting ready for this 70.3 and early season one, just wanted to see how it'd go. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll take no caffeine for the swim uh, or for the race. And but with about 40k to go on the bike, I'm gonna take, I think I took 600 milligrams. Oh, yeah. Boom. Mm. All in no dose tablets. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I rode away from the pack. <laughs> I think I rode that last 40K as quick as I did in any of my Olympic distance races. Got off, ran the first 10K of the half marathon, just unbelievably. And then, boom, the lights went out to the point where I was walking and, and I got caught literally, literally, as you make the final turn with 100 meters to go and I, and I lost the race and came second. Oh, no. So 
there is that kind of macro dosing does have its effects, but there must be some kind of dramatic side effect that goes with it. That's how I felt because I never did that again. I was like, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go that crazy on it. What what happened there? What do you think? Is that a dehydration thing? Tell me what happened. I'm still bummed about not winning that race. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think, you know, I couldn't tell you exactly what, what happened, but um, – the, you know, because it, it depends on the theory that you pres- uh, prescribe to um, in terms of the things that govern performance. You know, people may have heard of Tim Noakes's central governor theory, right? Where it's um, basically it's all controlled. Uh, you know, there's, there's this sort of like central control of the brain that's the, by the brain that's trying to stop you um, basically doing yourself an injury or, or some kind of harm. By, by pushing itself too hard and you have to kind of train that up and, and show 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 your brain that it's okay um, and that's you know this is certainly the case with um, you know tight muscles and other things that there's some kind of central component that's regulated I'm not saying that this is definitely the 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 reason <laughs> no, that these things happen but it, it's interesting because you know what what's essentially happened in one way or another is that because of the huge dose of caffeine you have felt able to get more out of your body than it was actually really willing to give and then something then then it, whatever it was whatever the rate limiting step was you ran out of that mm. um and this is what happens with a lot of performance enhancers is that you can get more out of your body or your brain for a given period of time question almost yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but I always say there's no biological free lunch. Like at some point you're gonna have to pay that back. <laughs> yeah. um, in whatever whatever respect it is. And and so so it's like um, you know, if people go and they take they go to a rave and they take MDMA and they feel amazing, right? Like everything's fire firing at three hundred percent for that evening. And then for the next two weeks they feel depressed because they've basically just completely emptied for a trap and just like everything is is done um and so this is what generally happens you know when you when you when you pharmaceutically enhance performance in the short term you may well perform better but is it going to get you all the way to the finish line first like that's the important thing. Uh, and then is like how are you going to pay for that later um yeah. and so so somehow the caffeine tricked you into giving more than you than you had um and you didn't quite pace it right to the end. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, is there any kind of you, – you mentioned you, you're a coffee snob, and I think I kind of have been over the years. I mean, you're in Seattle um, with Starbucks and all that around you. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you're not probably heading down to Starbucks. But is there any kind of specific caffeine? Like I've heard green tea is the caffeine that you should be doing and that kind of thing. Is there specific caffeine that you'd recommend or does it not matter? Yes. So the green tea uh, thing – uh, it, which is also replicated in a number of supplements, is is probably because there's L-theanine in there with the caffeine mm. form. Um, it's theophylline is the the form of caffeine that you usually get in tea. Um, and there there are some studies that suggest that if you take L-theanine with caffeine, you get um, basically less of the sort of jittery side effects of the caffeine and maybe some improvement in terms of the, particularly the cognitive benefits, um, if you're thinking about cognitive performance. Um, so that's why I think green tea is, is potentially uh, sort of lauded as, as, as a good way to get your caffeine is because L-theanine is already in there. Um, some supplements come with caffeine and L-theanine together. Um, I certainly feel fine with my coffee, which doesn't have any L-theanine in it. But some people might recommend that you take some L-theanine with your coffee in the morning. I haven't tried; I've tried that a few times. I didn't notice a big difference, but you know that's probably the reason. What you know, 
why that why they say that there is some very variability in how people respond to different forms so the the xanthine in coffee which is more like you know traditional caffeine um theophylline in tea theobromine in uh chocolate they all have very similar structures and interact with the adenosine receptor in the similar way so they have that kind of if that same effect so dark chocolate late at night you know if you're susceptible can is you know just is similar to having coffee there's usually about one milligram per gram of of um of, of dark chocolate something in that region um but some people like they'll eat chocolate and it has no effect but they'll drink black tea and everything goes crazy so there is some like personal variation in terms of how people respond to the different types as well. It's all fascinating. I love all of that. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned sleep. Um, it's an area that I've been kind of working on. I've found the last few years I've been sleeping very well between about 9 p.m. and then I wake wide awake really hot, mm-hmm. at, you know, 1 or 2 p.m., 2 a.m. in the morning and I've just gone and purchased myself a um, – a chili pad thing cost oh, me a fortune by the way yeah. <laughs> I, I, i'm uh, i'm testing it out everybody this is not a sponsorship pitch i'm just trying it out um and i have noticed that i still wake at that 1 or 2 a.m but because i'm cooler i'm able to get back to sleep a little bit mm. better so i think it's working i'm still not sure if it's just in my mind but and i still feel like i can't even get the bed cold enough i think i'm running at a really high temperature have you got I mean, without you've got no blood test in front of you or anything about me, but do you kind of have any theories on that? Yeah. Uh, so it certainly sounds um, uh, body temperature related. That, I mean, there are some ways that you can hack around that. Uh, I mean, having an earlier dinner is certainly beneficial, right? Because if you're still digesting, you may have a, particularly if you have a large protein, you know, and you should eat protein, but if you have a large uh, load of protein uh, at bedtime, sometimes that can, that could maybe, maintain your metabolic rate it has a higher thermic effect uh, protein compared to other foods and so particularly if you're eating it close ish to bedtime that you know there may maybe benefit to stretching that out um having a hot shower before bed can improve um heat loss at bedtime so that speeds you know um it, it, it decreases sleep latency so people fall asleep sooner but that can sort of like help you offload some temperature wearing hot socks shower. not, not hot a shower. cold shower yeah, yeah i've been doing cold all this time yeah, so so it, it may be that by because you've you've had a cold shower, yes, you rapidly decrease your core temperature, but then your body fights that to try and bring your core temperature back up, and that eventually oh, wakes wake you up. That's awesome. <laughs> so the the opposite happens if you have a cold shower, no, a hot shower, or a hot bath before bed, that improves your heat loss, which is what you want. So you, it's actually the opposite. Wow. Um, and there's one study. Um, Apparently, so my my friend Dr. Greg Potter, he's a, he's an expert in circadian biology, and he he told me about this this study. Um, and most of the tips, if I talk about tips for sleep, they usually came from him. Um, uh, if you wear socks in bed, apparently that improves your your heat loss elsewhere, so that can improve sleep as well, Co- like counterintuitively. Um, so those would be my. Those would be my three things to consider to try and improve temperature regulation and maintain a, a lower core body temperature when you're when you're sleeping. I can't get over that. That's gone opposite to everything I've thought been doing. And I mean, I think I struggle with that. What do they call it? That Reynards. You know, my I get very hot hands and feet, or they or they go very very cold. I don't. Oh know yeah, yeah Reynards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mm. So the idea of wearing socks to bed freaks me out. To be honest, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried it, and it, it was just super weird for me because I like to have. I actually have my feet out because I feel like that, that keeps me. Yeah. It keeps me cooler, but the idea is that it it shunts um sort of the the shunts blood else elsewhere, and then that you're better offloading heat from other parts of the body. 
I think that's it. Um, but anyway, so but hot hot baths and showers. Try a hot shower instead of a cold one. Yeah, you'll feel right. hotter initially, but you'll lose core temperature faster. That is fascinating to me. I mean, I prefer a hot shower. The cold showers get exhausting after a while. So that sounds fantastic. Now, before we, I know I've kept you a long, long time, but I do want to touch on what you're actually working on right now. Um, and I want to discuss sort of the minimizing the risk and recovery from head injuries like concussion. Um, I've had so many. You know, I retired. I think I had 33 bike crashes, and four of them yeah. with cars. And I played rugby before that. So I've had my my and my brother's been out more than I have when you know he was a professional rugby player. So it is an area of interest to me. Can we quickly just touch on what we can be doing um if we have had hits? Um, mm. you know, perhaps to help our brains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in, in in one minute or less. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, well so most of it is is basically um what I again this is my personal bias, but what I like about all the things that I've talked about is that they're all relevant to everything that we're interested in. Mm. Um, and so it, I guess there's two different stages there. So, so let's talk immediately or in the, in the early um, period after getting a concussion. Or, well, first, let's start before you get the concussion. Um, important things, creatine. Mm. Um, and then one thing that I'm increasingly interested in and uh, – trying to do some active research in is some of the, the the fat stuff that we talked about so reducing um particularly vegetable oils soybean canola fried foods they're in processed foods because they mess with inflammatory signaling and they're very susceptible to oxidative stress but at the same time making sure that you have enough of the long chain uh, omega-3 fatty acids so uh, dha and epa um so just like you know a few times a week, have a tin of sardines or some some seafood. Um, if you really have to, you can supplement with it. But so reducing those, um, it's particularly linoleic acid. This is an uh, omega six fatty acid found in vegetable oils. Less of that. Um, making sure that you have adequate uh, long chain omega threes. So some seafood. Um, that's going to make sure that you ha- you're in the best position to respond to the inflammation that's going to happen mm-hmm. once you get your head hit plus creatine so those are like my my pre pre concussion things immediately after the concussion um super important for recovery of the brain after any injury is blood sugar so um if you get a concussion really that's that's a time to avoid refined carbohydrates yeah you know powerade gatorade Mm. you know anything you know breads and cakes and cookies i'd really keep those out for you know, at least the weeks after the concussion, because large swings in blood sugar are really bad for the brain, particularly when it's recovering from an injury. Um, Then I think we're going to learn a lot more. And again, something that I'm actively researching about um, ketones, either ketogenic diets or exogenous ketones as neuroprotective agents after concussions. Um, There are salts and esters. The ester is probably the best thing that you can get at the moment on the market for exogenous ketones. Um, I don't have the perfect protocol to recommend because it hasn't really been studied, you know, robustly in that arena, but that work is happening right now. So I think that's going to happen. Um, that's going to happen in the next couple of years. That's going to come to the fore. But, you know, if you have experience with, you know, some people may take ketone esters because they have an, an ergogenic benefit in endurance athletes uh, acutely. Um, so if you have some experience with those, then they may be worth taking regularly. Um, 
if you've got the, if you've got a big enough bank account. If you've got a big enough <laughs> bank account, because to keep your ketones high with the ketone ester oh. definitely requires deep deep pockets. So so that's it's not required, but it's it's a it's a super interesting area that I think is gonna. And, and I know of other companies that are trying to make these things much more affordable. So that's going mm-hmm. to be important too. Um, the other thing, again, is, is temperature control. So after any kind of brain injury, it's really important that the brain doesn't get too hot. Um, so when uh, the, and we, and when when we look at brain injury responses, if, if you have some kind of fever afterwards, then um, that's usually associated with the worst outcome across a range of different types of brain injury and severities of brain injury. So Mm. the reason why that's important is because one thing that is uh, important for recovery from concussions is movement and exercise. So as soon as you're able, and if if you had a severe concussion, you'll probably have some kind of coach or physio who will help you with this, but some kind of graded return to exercise, light aerobic exercise, walking, um, is going to be really important as basically, you know, within a, you know, a few days or a week or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do that, you don't want to get too hot. So there have been some, um, so I've worked with some coaches who have athletes who've had concussions. And when we talked about returning to exercise, particularly if they start to, you know, get back on the turbo or, or something like that, that's usually the kind of exercise they're going to be doing making sure they're in a cool environment. And if they can't be in a cool environment, then ice packs or ice um, vests can be really important. Sort of get, getting some some cooling around the, the the arteries and the veins in the neck can probably keep your brain cooler, stop it overheating. So I think that's potentially important. Then also sleep. Sleep is going to, you know, getting, getting to like a robust circadian rhythm is going to be really important. Um, so that's, and then all of those things, I think long-term are also potentially important, you know, blood sugar control, sleep particularly um you know maybe even uh, bringing some ketones on board or a ketogenic diet if you start to see some kind of long-term cognitive um uh effect of your concussions then i think that that's that's going to be potentially beneficial as well so that's kind of that that it was more than a minute but that's that's my no thought. no i mate i was only teasing and i, I honestly <laughs> if I, it's not you i I'd, I'd have you on for another hour or two so i'm being <laughs> i don't want to take any more of your time i have one final question and it's just an area that i'm really passionate about and mm-hmm. people that listen to this podcast would recognize it is i've always loved visualizing and i'm a big dreamer and, I, and i'm a, I, I rehearse visualizing a lot for key performances or you know even if it's not athletics it can be other things even like this podcast and this show i, I visualize where i want it to go and i'm the hormonal respect, uh, aspect of that is what I'm intrigued by because I kind of believe that I can visualize while I'm lying on a massage table, create a hormonal respect uh, 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 kind of effect, sorry, excuse me, that then affects me physically. Would you agree that the brain has that kind of, if you're good enough at visualizing and, and how that works? Yeah, absolutely. What, what you think has a direct effect on your physiology um, and – I mean, we can come at that from from so many different angles. So, so if we're thinking about it, you know, in terms of like visualization and hormones and performance, I guess I don't have a huge amount of evidence to underlie that. Uh, but there is plenty of evidence to suggest that um, what you're told about, say, your genetics directly affects your physiology. It can change hormone levels. It can change how you perform on a treadmill, um, even if it's not actually true. Even if you're just told that at random, and it's and you're it's completely different from what your genetics actually say. So, wow. what you think about what your body can do and how it can perform directly affects hormones. They can see changes in hormone levels just because of what they've been told um, 
brought you know and nothing else um the, you see the same thing um so alan langer has done some really cool work um looking at how thoughts affect physiology um and uh they, she did a study where um they looked at uh, chambermaids in hotels who are generally um overweight and have some metabolic health issues and um they randomized them to either just like continue as they normally would or by telling them that you know the work that you do you know moving the hoover and changing beds and walking up and downstairs that's you're doing a load of exercise just at work and just by telling them that they saw an improvement in their health and they lost weight which is insane wow Um, i love that we've we've also seen if people who have you know people undergoing cognitive behavioral therapy as part of some psychological program for something they see improvements in immune function uh they say improvements in hormonal function so there was one study where um women who who had lost their normal cycle um like the normal hormone cycle mm-hmm. underwent cbt nothing else changed and their cycle returned um so there are so many ways in which what you think can directly affect hormones so and and then the physiology beyond that so so yes I, you know, in each exact scenario, the uh, the evidence may not exist. But you know, if you triangulate all these different places, whereby just changing the way you think could directly affect your hormones, then I absolutely think it's true. I love that. And you know what? I'm going to have to bring you on again, and we're just going to spend the whole time just talking about the effects <laughs> of the hormones on the physical body and how we can utilize that, you know, in sporting performances or, or elsewhere in our life. Because I just, I'm blown away by it, and I still feel like we're we're very early in the stages of understanding the true power of the brain. And I know you're doing a lot of work on that now. And so I'm going to have to bring you back on and we're going to have to dissect that even a lot, lot more. Because I the, just there's a, the, there's a great, there's a great talk by a good friend of mine, Dr. Brian Walsh. Uh, he gave it a conference I ran in Iceland a few years ago. Um, I think it's called, there's something about thought driven physiology. It's on YouTube. I'll send you the video. And actually great. a lot of the studies that I just talked about, he, he mentions in that talk, you'll love it. Perfect. Well, we'll add that to the show notes. So people listening, um, I'll upload that. Also on the show notes, I'll have, so people, if they want to reach out to you, Tommy, they can get you either on Instagram at Dr. Tommy Wood. I'll put that in the show notes as well for people that want to do it and your website, drragnar.com. And I can't help but say your your Icelandic name and think of the the show Vikings with Ragnar Lofbrok. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's a really awesome name. I love it. I, Thanks. Uh, I didn't realize until doing this home, uh, homework for this show that you had. Uh, I knew there was some kind of a, a British and American. I didn't realize you had Icelandic as well. And then I saw your website and uh, mm. everybody yeah. wants to check it out. Dr. Ragnar, so R-A-G-N-A-R.com. Go check it out. And um, you've got a lot of blogs and podcasts that you've done on there. And for people that want to have any consulting from you or any kind of extra work, they can just contact you either on Instagram or, or, or through your website, correct? Yeah, so, so I don't do much like one-on-one client consulting anymore, but okay. I do do quite a bit of working with coaches who have athletes or clients. So, so one way or another, um, if, okay. if if I can be of any help, please please reach out and we'll figure something out. Mate, I just absolutely have enjoyed this, you know, 92 minutes of your time we've been chatting and it's just gone so quick. I've just loved every minute of it and once again, learned so much more, whether it be creatine or, you know, blood sugar, caffeine. And I just uh, really, really appreciate it. Um, Just fantastic. 
And, uh, you know, so anybody listening, if you want to go check out the show notes, it'll have all the links. Um, it'll have timestamps. If you want to go back and look at, you know, specific things that we've talked about, you can do that there. But Tommy, really appreciate it, mate. Thank you, everybody, for listening as well. It's been just wonderful to have this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. This is a huge amount of fun. It was great. Cheers, buddy. Stay on the line and uh, we'll chat in a bit. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.